there's, there's not many movies that I um, can go back to many times and watch sort of again and again and again. I'm more a, you know, watch a movie once and then that's it, that's it kind of guy. But um, there are a few. This is one movie that I always enjoy going back to watch uh, again and again and again. Uh, a Few Good Men, if you know the movie, uh, a courtroom drama. It's got that famous line, uh, you can't handle the truth, uh, which is what Jack Nicholson's character a uh, famous general says as he's finally brought down, brought to justice, and the Marine who's wrongfully accused of murder is set free and the real culprit is brought down. Justice is done. I think that's, for me, what makes the movie. It's this amazing story of vindication. You almost find yourself cheering along as, against all odds, justice wins the day. And I think there is something in our hearts about justice. Uh, we long for justice to be done. We celebrate it when we see it. We, uh, we love to see things that are fair and good and right. And uh, particularly in the Western world, we're used to sort of justice and, and, and getting justice. We have courts and uh, a legal system that's put in place to try and ensure that we, uh, we do do justice and, and we, that fairness is upheld. Uh, but at the same time, we do know that justice is never a given. There are plenty of times when justice isn't done. It might be that your football team plays better all day and then loses with a freaky goal after the siren. Uh, it might be that, you know, not thinking of anything in particular. Uh, it might be that uh, I saw an ad this week for A Current Affair. Um, I've never watched A Current Affair, but in the ad, uh, there was this apartment building in Melbourne and it had this sort of car storage stacker system. You know, those ones that you kind of drive your car into and it sort of picks your car up and stores it. Um, and the, sto- the, the story was that this car stacker system had been like broken for two months and all these people hadn't been able to drive their cars for weeks and weeks. Uh, and in the ad, they were sort of following the, the owner of the apartment building who, you know, parked his car somewhere else. So he was still able to drive and they were saying, hey, you're able to drive your car. What are you doing? You know, what about all these other people? Where's justice for all these people not being able to drive their cars for weeks and weeks? I'm sure some of us will have experienced uh, more seriously justice, uh, injustice in Perhaps our law, court, law courts, in our, in our family courts, and of course on a more global scale, we know, don't we, that injustice is everywhere. So many live in poverty, so many don't have those opportunities, so many do suffer from a, ra- a lack of rights, from inequality, from, from racism, lack of access to education, whatever it is. We, we love the idea of justice, but we are very aware that uh, this world is not a world of justice. Injustice is everywhere. And so when it comes to God, we might say, well, what's God doing to allow this world where there's so much injustice? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he care about fairness? Why has he allowed so much injustice in his world? Well, uh, in our reading today, we get another great courtroom drama that Luke gives to us. And unlike a few good men uh, in the story we've had read out today, justice is most certainly not upheld. In fact, this is probably what we're looking at today, the most famous miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen. And if we're going to get an answer to that question of why God allows injustice in his world, well, this is a good place to start because today we see that God chose to take the worst of injustice and take it onto himself. We're going to see that he chose to do that because justice is something that he cares about very deeply. And there are really three big injustices in our story today, three big ones that I think it's worth us identifying, um, three aspects perhaps to the injustice that we've read about. Uh, here are the three. Number one, the created take down the creator. 
Number two, the innocent one is punished. And number three, the guilty one goes free. Three different, perhaps, levels to the injustice that we've read about. Uh, so let's notice each of, each of these in turn. First, let's notice the created taking down the creator. Of course, according to the Bible, Jesus is God. Jesus is God come to earth as a man. He's the one who made the world. Through Jesus, uh, creation happened. Through Jesus, the world was made. And so, you know, the, the fair thing you would think, you know, the just thing would be that when the creator comes to visit his creation and, and be part of his creation, well, people should respond by praise and respect and and allegiance you know you made us you know this is the creator we belong to you 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 know how this world was meant to be we're going to live your way we're going to listen to you but instead when jesus comes to jerusalem instead of being fair and giving him what he's owed god's creation well they conspire together to take the creator down let's have another look at our story and see how it happens it um, starts in verse 63, if you were with us um, last week, we saw that uh, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus has just been arrested. And right from the start, as soon as he's arrested, Jesus is not treated with any sort of justice or respect. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And then what we're going to see now is we're going to see this courtroom drama unfolding over a number of different stages, a number of different scenes. There's a number of different kind of stages to this this legal process. The first one is this Jewish council, a a Jewish council. We're we're in Jerusalem, of course. We're in Israel, first century Jerusalem. Um, And and by the way, that means that the Romans have the real power here. So the Romans are the ones in charge. But um, the Romans, they like to give the local people sort of a level of authority. So the Jews had this kind of ruling council too. And they had, by the way, they had, a, they had a law that said that the Jewish ruling council wasn't able to meet um, except during daylight hours. You know, they weren't sort of allowed to do dodgy kind of backroom deals under the cover of darkness. So they had to wait until sunrise. Uh, and this is what happened. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. You just imagine, can't you? Jesus brought before these people, probably 50 or so, gathered around like a a parliamentary senate, asking him these questions. Let's notice a few things about it. I mean, first, I think, we can notice how little Jesus actually really says here. You know, they ask him, you know, you're the son of a God. And he says, well, that's, that's, God. that's your words, not mine. And, and apparently to the Jewish leaders, that's enough. They say, oh, no, nope. uh, he said it. They're so desperate to get rid of him that any excuse to find him guilty is all that they need. And there are also lots of things that are quite ironic in this uh, little account. I think it's worth noticing some of the irony. Um, they say to Jesus, you're blaspheming. You know, they accuse him of blasphemy, disrespecting God. But who are the ones here that are disrespecting God? They are the ones that have actually taken God and put God before a council and are about to call for the execution of God. They charge Jesus with blasphemy while simultaneously committing the greatest blasphemy ever known to man. And ironic too, isn't it, that these are the Jewish leaders. These are the ones, uh, that they're religious leaders, sorry. These are the ones who were charged with 
are helping Israel to follow God. And they're the very ones who end up taking God down. Oh, except, of course, they haven't taken Jesus down quite yet. And you see it at the end there, they say, you know, why do we need any more testimony? Except, actually, we're only very much at the start of this legal procedure because the Jewish you know, leaders, they were pretty easy to convince. They want to, ge- they want to kill Jesus. Um, but again, we're in Roman territory. And actually, the Jewish council you know, has some power, but they are going to need Rome's approval if they're going to be able to go through with this and execute Jesus. So we come to chapter three, uh, 23, and it says, The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, to the Roman governor. And the Jews here, they're really, they're kind of going to be acting as the prosecution in this case. They're, they're the ones trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is guilty. And actually, uh, we're going to see that they actually don't have all that much of a case. You know, so far they've only uncovered the charge of blasphemy and Pilate doesn't really care about Jewish religious disputes. So what they're going to have to do is they're actually going to have to make up some other charges. So this is what they say. They, they say, we've uh, found this guy uh, subverting our nation. If, if you're going to get Jesus executed, then painting him as a rebel is a good way to do it. So we've found this man subverting our nation. Uh, and I don't really think Jesus has really done anything like that, by the way. Uh, secondly, he opposes payments of taxes to Caesar. Well, if anyone was here um, a few weeks ago, we looked at, uh, looked at the story of Jesus talking about Roman taxes. And uh, if you'll recall, Jesus actually said the exact opposite. He actually did encourage the people to pay their taxes. And lastly, he claims to be a Messiah, a king. Three charges. I guess that last one is probably the only one with some real truth behind it. I guess maybe the Jews think that Pilate is perhaps going to get spooked and worried. Oh, you know, someone claiming to be a king, you know, Caesar's not going to like that. Um, we better get rid of him. But Pilate, he's heard these three charges and he looks straight at Jesus and he says, uh, are you the king of the Jews? I, I kind of think he almost says it um, sort of like, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Like you, like you're some random peasant and you're, you're a mess. You know, Jesus had been beaten all night, hadn't slept. You know, you're the king of the Jews. You know, surely this is some sort of big joke. And you have said so, Jesus replied. Uh, but Pilate's not an idiot. He, he knows that this guy is no real threat to Rome. So he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. For a moment you think, okay, well, justice is going to be done. You know, the Jews don't really have a case. You know, they're making some stuff up, but Pilate's no slouch. He knows that they're just being stupid. But the Jews come back again. They insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. And he started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. And, and Pilate's listening along. And Pilate, well, actually, it's almost like his ears pricked up. He hears a word. He hears the word Galilee. He started in, started in Galilee. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, a little, bit of, um, a little bit of history for you. Sorry about this, but um, just a little bit of detail for a minute. We see the name Herod, and Herod, um, you, you probably would have heard the name Herod before. There are a number of Herods in the Bible, actually. There's not just one. Um, Herod was a family name, this kind of powerful dynasty of Jewish kings. Uh, if you know the Christmas story, you might remember uh, evil King Herod. You remember him who tried to um, sort of get the wise men to tell him where Jesus was so he could go and um, killed Jesus. He was known as Herod the Great. So he ruled all of Israel, still, still under Rome, but he was in charge of all of Israel. Uh, and he died. And, and when he died, he 
had three sons and so he divided Israel up and gave kind of a third of the country to each of his three sons. So now there's, there was sort of three Herods, each ruling different parts of the country. And, and just again in the Christmas story, you might remember um, Joseph and Mary, remember they go off to Egypt to escape the first kind of Herod and then they hear uh, that Herod the Great has died and so that's why they decide to come back to uh, Israel. But then they, they realize that the south part of the country is actually a very dangerous part to be um, and so they go and end up, end up living in the north. And that's because the, the, one of those three sons, Herod's son who he chose to put in charge of the south, uh, the one he char- chose to put in charge of Jerusalem, that son um, was really the son that was the most loose, the most aggro, the most um, aggressive. And so um, that, that's the one who's ruling in Jerusalem. But actually he only ends up living for a couple of years, I think, uh, only ends up ruling for a couple of years, I mean to say, because Rome just comes in and says, well, this guy's just a lunatic, and they get rid of him. Uh, and that's when they bring in Pilate, who's not a Jew, he's just a Roman governor. So they get rid of kind of the idea of a king, and they bring in Pilate to rule the south part of the country. So that's where Pilate comes from. And what you end up with is you have this southern part of Israel, which is where Jerusalem is, and there you have this Pilate guy, this governor ruling. But in the other parts of Israel, you still had Herod's other two sons, still in charge and one of the more reasonable of the sons was um, the Herod who was in charge of places like Galilee. His name was Herod Antipas. Now that's the detail so if your eyes glazed over that's fine, come back. Uh, The important thing is that Pilate, he's ruling the south part and he kind of doesn't want to deal with Jesus and he realizes that Herod who rules the north part, well actually Jesus is from the north so he can actually get Herod to come and decide what to do. So as we go on, Herod, you know, he's from the north. So um, it says there that he saw Jesus. He's actually heard about Jesus quite a lot because he's he's from the north. That's where Jesus has done most of his ministry. So when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So Herod, he's been up in the north. He's heard about Jesus and he he thinks, well, Jesus has done lots of signs. Maybe I'm going to get to see a sign, you know, maybe a magic trick. Treat Jesus like a little bit of a court jester or a performer. This is going to be great. Let's have a look at Jesus. But he doesn't get any of that. And what he doesn't give Jesus in return is any sort of justice. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe and sent him back to Pilate. And then a little verse there at the end that I think is actually quite interesting. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before that they had been enemies, you know. Herod and Pilate, they didn't like each other very much. You know, Pilate had come and taken this guy's brother's um, job. But in working together to bring down Jesus, it sort of gives them something in common. You know, I can imagine Pilate saying to Herod at the end, well, this is fun, you know, doing this together. You know, we must catch up for dinner sometime. They became friends. And actually that verse, I think, that Luke has put in there for us, I think it's a little bit more than just a random detail. I think Luke gives it to us because it reminds us of something, a prophecy right back in the Old Testament in the Psalms. Let me just take you there for a second. Psalm Psalm 2. That's what Psalm 2 says. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their their shackles. The kings of earth, they're going to get together, they're going to become friends, they're going to conspire together to bring down God and to bring down God's anointed. 
the creation uniting together against the Creator. So we started with the Jewish council, you know, they conspired and lied. Uh, the Roman authorities, they, they, they don't seem like they're doing their job of upholding justice, they're conspiring together. It's not just, it's not fair. This is the Creator, this is Jesus, He deserves loyalty, He's owed loyalty, and yet His creation conspires together to bring Him down. And one thing we might say about what we've just read is that, well, Jesus, you know, He didn't actually really help Himself very much, did He? You know, He didn't speak up, He didn't offer much of a defense. You know, Pilate questioned Him, Herod questioned Him, He didn't really push back or offer any big arguments. Maybe He needed Tom Cruise as His defense lawyer, Uh, maybe that would have got Him off. But of course, the truth is that, of course, Jesus could easily have gotten out of this situation, couldn't he? You know, we've been reading through Luke's gospel, we're well aware of Jesus' power. You know, he's, he's Jesus who said one word and calmed the storm. He could say one word and that whole Jewish council could drop dead. He could have said one word and walked out of there a free man. But what this means is that Jesus had the power to get out of this but what that means is that therefore he must have chosen that this is what he was going to go through he chose not to speak up he chose to be subjected to this injustice it's not not a guy who's just got himself into deep water this is deliberate he's actually in complete control and if we've been reading carefully we'll know that he's predicted that this is what's going to happen many times he's not caught by surprise jesus chose to came into this come into this world He chose to subject himself to injustice. He chose to endure under unjust punishment. He chose not to put up a fight. He chose to go through with this because of what he would accomplish by doing so. I spoke about our Easter services before this Friday. Um, Come along, it's going to be a bit different to what we normally do. Um, We're going to be hearing the Easter story. We'll have some singing, we'll have some prayers. Um, It's going to be reflective. Uh, We're going to journey with Jesus on the way to the cross. Um, We'll start from the Lord's Supper and we'll take the Lord's Supper um, as we read about Jesus taking the Last Supper. And it's probably going to be dark on Friday. We're going to have a big cross set up here. Um, We'll probably do something interesting with the lights. We haven't quite figured it out yet, but um, the the vibe will be sad and somber. And that vibe is very much appropriate for Good Friday. But what I also want us to remember as we come to Good Friday is that we're not reading the story of a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. It's not... It's not the sort of situation that got out of hand and something terrible happened kind of before anyone was able to kind of stop it and it just got out of control. No, it's the story of Jesus in control, willingly choosing to go through with this, really willingly choosing to go to the cross, to go to his death because of what his death would accomplish. It's deliberate. It's a moment of victory. This is what Jesus wanted to do. This is why he came. That's, of course, why we call it Good Friday. And and yes, it's a sad story. It's a story of injustice. But it's also a story of Jesus' deliberate plan leading him to his greatest moment of greatest victory where his kingdom would be established. Well, we've seen how they're created. They get together, they take down the creator. Uh, Let's have a look at a couple of the other aspects of injustice in this reading that we've read out a little bit faster now. Uh, The innocent one punished. Jesus... Jesus comes back to Pilate again. He's, he's, he's gone to Herod and now he's come back to Pilate again. Uh, and what's clear kind of through this whole bit is that Jesus is just clearly innocent. Uh, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. 
I've examined him in your presence and I've found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent, us back, sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. So Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. Herod thinks Jesus is innocent. But by now, a large crowd has gathered. And the mob is starting to raise the tension. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We've gone well past the stage of rational arguments. No more thinking, no more real courtroom at all, really. It's just mob rule. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What, what crime has this man committed? Yeah, he wants to hear an argument. I've found no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, and they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. And it's just awful to read, isn't it? You know, you want to say, where's the proper procedure? What about the appeals process? Where's the justice? Crucifixion was normally reserved for the lowest of the low, slaves, murders, murderers and rebels. Jesus isn't a murderer, he's not a rebel. And yet rebellion is the crime he's going to be crucified for. There's no justice. Even though Pilate clearly thinks Jesus is innocent, the mob, the crowd is going to get its way. And we can sit here and just think, you know, what an awful situation it was. But we should also stop and ask ourselves, what would we do if we were part of the crowd that day? If we were one of the soldiers, maybe, that's just arrested this troublemaker. You know, the other soldiers start mocking Jesus, roughing him up a bit. You know, would you just, would you step in and put it to a stop? Or would you stand there in the back, maybe laughing a little bit? You know, maybe you're in the crowd in the courtroom. The leaders have been pushing for this guy's execution. Uh, and you know he's been saying all sorts of controversial things. Maybe it would be better if we just got him out of the way. Yeah, everyone else is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and you're standing at the back. Would you really be the one to stand up for Jesus and try and stop the crowd? Would you go along with the crowd as well? I went up to the footy on, um, went up to the footy on Thursday night. There is something about human nature, I think, that makes it hard to go against the crowd, you know. The crowd boos an umpire, you know, you stand up and you boo as well. The crowd cheers, you cheer. I think also there's probably something in human nature that likes the idea of throwing off authority. You know, Jesus has come along telling us how to live our lives and what to do. You know, who is he to tell us how to live? I think there's part of us that would rather just get rid of people like that. Probably part of us that would rather just throw off God. You know, we want to live how we want to live. We want to live our way. You know, we want to make our own decisions, be true to ourselves and live the lives that we want to live. Like Psalm 2, let's break these chains. Let's throw off these shackles. You know, I think if we are honest, I think if we were there in Jerusalem on this night of trials a couple of thousand years ago, I think at best we might have run away and just gotten out of there. At worst, we would have been right in the middle of that crowd shouting for Jesus' death. We don't need this king. We don't need him telling us how to live our lives. Injustice wins the day. The created take down the creator, the innocent one is punished. Finally, then, the guilty one goes free. 
You probably noticed in our story today one more character, uh, Barabbas. When Pilate wanted to release Jesus, the whole crowd, he was the guy that they said, oh no, release Barabbas instead. You know, they wanted to convict Jesus as a rebel, but Barabbas, well, he actually was a rebel. uh, rebel. In verse 19, it said he'd been thrown in prison for an insurrection and for a murder. Verse 25 at the end sums it up. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. There it is, injustice in one sentence. The murderer, the rebel, he's allowed to go free. The innocent one is crucified in his place. And ultimately, why does it happen? Well, right here, it's the one that they asked for. You know, I've been asking today questions about justice, questions about why the world is so full of injustice, why, why God doesn't do, so, do more about the brokenness of the world. One of the things to say about that is that according to the Bible, the injustice of this world is very much of our own making. It started right back in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve didn't want to live God's way. Instead, they wanted to live their own lives. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. They had a choice to live in a world that was just to live the way that God wanted them to live, but instead they wanted to be God. And Adam and Eve isn't just the story of one thing that happened thousands of years ago. It's the story of what happens again and again and again. Again, here in the story of Jesus, the people, they could have chosen the way of justice, but instead they ask for the guilty to go free and for the innocent to be punished. I don't think that much has changed today. How much of injustice in this world is here because of the way that we have chosen to live? You know, the crowd, the mob, it might not be just so much us as individuals, but the crowd, you know, our society, we've decided that we're going to put ourselves first, even if it means that people in other parts of the world are exploited. And so really the injustice of this world is of our own making. And we could ask God to come and deal with it, to come and bring justice into the world, to come and hand out heavy justice and deal out punishments and put things right. The real question is, well, do we really want him to do that? If God was to come today and judge and bring true justice, you know, what would he do to us? If we're just one of the crowd, just part of that creation that's not wanting to live the way of the creator, would he really just kind of pick out a few kind of super evil people and say, oh, all the rest of you, you were just innocent bystanders, so you you all get off? Or would he look at all of us and say that actually we're all part of the problem? I think the truth is that if we were really treated with justice, we would be the ones found guilty. We're probably more like those crowds who called for Jesus to be crucified. We're probably more like Peter from last week who abandoned Jesus when the going gets tough. We're probably more like Barabbas, a rebel. Except for us, it's not rebelling against Rome, we're rebelling against God, choosing to live our way, not his way. So why doesn't God do more to bring about justice in this world? Well, the truth is that he could come and get rid of injustice, but he might very well have to get rid of us as part of that. And the problem is that he loves us too much. And so what he chose to do instead is he chose to do the greatest thing he could do. He came, he took injustice onto himself, he died the death that we deserved so that we, like Barabbas, can be those guilty ones who get to go free. Just um, imagine for a second being Barabbas on that uh, Good Friday. 
It reads to me like this was probably actually the day, you know, that the execution had been scheduled. Three crosses were already kind of there and ready. Uh, He was going to die a rebel's death. He'd probably gotten up that Friday morning knowing that it was going to be his last day on earth. He'd eaten his last meal. He would have probably heard footsteps coming down to his cell. This is it, he would have thought. And then the guard would have grabbed his handcuffs Rather than lead lead Brabus to the cross, he led Brabus to freedom. Told him he could go. There's another movie that I um, go back to and watch again and again and again. You know this one? Shawshank Redemption. Another story about justice. This time the courts fail the innocent man and he's put in prison. And uh, the main character, he spends 20 years in prison, but slowly and surely he plots and he plans his escape. And as the movie ends, he finally gets out, finally finds his freedom and brings down the corrupt prison warden. Again, it's an amazing moment there. You just want to cheer that justice has been done. And then you get to see what the man does next. He's free. He gets to start his new life. Well, when Barabbas was let free at that last hour, it wasn't because of justice. He, was, he deserved what was coming for him. Uh, and Luke actually leaves us hanging as to what Barabbas chooses to do next. He's free. He's out. What does he do? We, we don't know. Did he go and did he watch Jesus die in his place? Did he go off and start a new life like the guy in Shawshank Redemption? How did he respond? Did he, did he do, the, do the work to find out who Jesus was? Did he choose to follow Jesus? Well, we'll never know how Barabbas responded to being set free, but we can choose how we respond to Jesus. God did do something about the injustice of this world. He dealt with it in the best way possible. He chose to come. He came, he came to be among us. He, he came into our world of brokenness and injustice and he bore the worst of injustice onto himself. But like the prison couldn't hold the guy in Shawshank Redemption, death couldn't hold Jesus. Justice did win in the end, he rose again as king of a new kingdom. A kingdom which anyone can now enter into because of his death. Whether we've perpetrated injustice, whether we've contributed to injustice, whether we've suffered from injustice ourselves, we all have the opportunity to join this perfect kingdom where things will finally be put right, where justice will finally reign. And so the question for us is, well, will we go to Jesus? Will we cling to Jesus? Will we live for Jesus? Will we live for our Creator? Will we live for our Saviour? Will we celebrate and live this new life, remembering the freedom that He bought us with His death? I'm going to pray that God would help us to do just that.